It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. On this episode, we're going to be studying part two of what it is to be heirs of the grace of life. This is an indication of your inheritance from God. But if you don't know about an inheritance, you cannot lay claim to it. Many years ago, I read a very tragic story about a man who was found dead in the back of a junkyard. He was living in a very rudely constructed lean-to out of throwaway tin and lumber. His body was emaciated. His clothing was tattered. Those who found him searched his body to find something that would indicate his identity, and much to their surprise, they discovered when they searched the county records that he was an heir to over a quarter of a million dollars. He could have had all the good things in life, and instead he died in squalor and poverty. That's a tragedy, but there's a tragedy just as great, if not greater, and that is sons and daughters of God who are unaware of their inheritance. If you are an heir of the grace of life, you need to learn it and then lay claim to it and live in the victory that it supplies. Now, on this episode, I'm going to ask four very important questions. Number one, when did you receive for the first time the grace of God? The answer is going to be awe-inspiring to you. When did you first receive the grace of God? Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Think of that before there was an earth spinning in space before the universe had been birthed into existence, before there was a swirling galaxy called the Milky Way, before time existed, before Adam and Eve were formed in the Garden of Eden, you were formed in the mind of God. God anticipated your existence and mapped out a plan for you in advance, and God gave you not only a purpose but grace in Christ Jesus before time began to fulfill that purpose. So I would dare to boldly say that you have enough grace to climb every mountain, to go through every valley, to overcome every negative situation, to emerge victorious no matter what you face in life. Because God is the omniscient God. He knew every detail about your future before you arrived there. And so he gave you enough grace in advance, knowing that you would be his child, knowing that you would be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus so that you could come out victorious when you exit this world. That is a comforting thought indeed. So that's the answer to question number one. When did you first receive the grace of God? The number two question is this. 
What is the most misinterpreted scripture about grace to be found in the Bible? Well, that's very easy for me to identify. I've heard this passage misused over and over again, especially by the secular media. Let me take you there. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to go ahead and lay a foundation by quoting the first few verses. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You have fallen from grace. What a powerful statement. I've heard that used by the secular media, especially in reference to some respected, some revered individual who is found in some kind of compromising situation, maybe proven to be dishonest in business dealings or involved in some kind of immorality. And they say, so-and-so fell from grace. And it means, of course, within their language, that he's no longer the revered, respected, or she is no longer the revered, respected individual that that person was. However, that language traces back to the Bible where it means something completely different. And let me explain it to you. This passage is talking to the Galatians who were trying to be right with God by fulfilling the law, the Torah. And usually when you find the word law in scripture, it's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that contain 613 commandments. And the curse of the law is found in Deuteronomy 27, 26. This says, cursed is he who confirms not all the words of the law to do them. And so it was salvation by works. It was very much an intense effort on the adherence part, the believer's part, to arrive at a place of perfection where all 613 commandments are obeyed and fulfilled. And here in this passage, Paul says you cannot attain a status of righteousness by doing that. He said, I testify again to every one of you who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to do the whole law. In other words, if you think circumcision will justify you in the sight of God, then you've got to fulfill all 612 other commandments in order to be justified. Then he says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. The word justified means legally acquitted of all guilt, just as if you never sinned, acquitted before the throne of God and considered righteous in the sight of heaven. If you seek to be justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. That doesn't mean unrighteousness. The secular world uses it to mean unrighteousness. Many Christians have used that phrase to mean unrighteousness but it's not being caught in a scandal. It's quite the opposite. Those who fall from grace are those who attempt to be perfect. 
within their own religious works. They attempt to be flawless within their own character, and thus they achieve a status of righteousness. But when you really examine your own heart and life, your past, your present, you've got to come to the conclusion that you cannot achieve a status of righteousness by your own behavior or character, because you're always going to have shortcomings in your thought life, in your emotional life. Maybe you're living a relatively flawless life as far as your outward actions are concerned, but you're still an imperfect human being. And that's why you've got to have more than humanly attained righteousness. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is fantastic. So to fall from grace is not to fall into unrighteousness, is to fall from a status of imparted righteousness into the low valley. It's like falling down the side of a mountain, rolling down to the valley until you get to this horrible dark place of trying to be righteous within your own works. That's a dark place to be because you can never arrive there 100%. And so that's how people misinterpret Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. I like some of the other translations. For instance, the King James Version says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. No effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. The ISV version says, those of you who are trying to be justified by the law have been cut off from the Messiah. You have fallen away from grace. Cut off from the Messiah. In other words, you have been cut off. You've severed your own connection to the unlimited forgiveness and grace and restoration and imparted righteousness that is available to you at the cross. This leads me to question number three. What are the two erroneous extremes to which people carry the beautiful doctrine of grace? When it's a balanced view, it is one of the most wonderful, one of the most glorious revelations to be found in Scripture. But too often, people carry this concept of grace to one extreme or the other, and both are wrong. Both are erroneous. First, I'm going to talk about frustrating the grace of God, which is legalism. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, the King James Version says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Listen, if you can become 100% righteous in the sight of heaven by your works, by now, don't get me wrong, don't misinterpret this, but by paying your tithe and going to church and wearing uh, modest clothing and, and uh, curbing your speech of any negativity or, or bad or filthy words, if you, if you can attain a status of righteousness by ridding your heart of bitterness or anxiety or unbelief, then Jesus went to the cross in vain. You don't need the washing of the blood of Jesus when the Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the best you can do is still filthy in the sight of heaven because it's tainted by the lower nature. 
I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Two other translations, the English majority text version says, I do not annul the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. The complete Jewish Bible says, I do not reject God's gracious gift. For if the way in which one attains righteousness is through legalism, then the Messiah's death was pointless. Wow, those are powerful passages and all of those different versions are powerful ways of saying it. Now let me go to the other extreme, liberalism. What was the original question? It was question number three. What are the two erroneous extremes to which people carry the beautiful doctrine of grace? The other extreme is liberalism. Let me take you to Jude chapter one. There's only one chapter in Jude and verses three and four. We are exhorted to earnestly contend for the faith. The faith is the sum of religious principles we believe in as Christians. And we're told to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word lasciviousness is an old word rarely used now that means unrestrained lust. The New King James Version translates it into the word lewdness. The complete Jewish Bible says that these are ungodly people who pervert God's grace into a license for debauchery, and they disown our only master and Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, Along with that scripture, Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, another supportive scripture is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. And that talks about those who trample underfoot the Lord Jesus and count the blood of the covenant wherewith we have been sanctified an unholy thing. And then it goes on to say in the King James Version that they do despite under the spirit of grace. Other newer versions say that they insult and outrage the Spirit of grace, and that is a title for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings the grace of God into your life. But when you try to manipulate the revelation of grace in order to fit a lewd lifestyle, an unclean lifestyle of immorality, justifying behavior that is ungodly in the sight of heaven, then the Bible says you insult and outrage the spirit of grace. Now, I personally have met people who have told me that they were right with God, and yet they were indulging in the most perverse sexual sin. Yet they told me they were right with God because they were under grace. Those kind of individuals are exactly what these two verses are talking about. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. They are using this beautiful expression of unmerited love, unearned divine favor that comes through the cross, that came through the death of Jesus to make an ungodly lifestyle acceptable. Well, the Bible's very clear about the outcome of those who believe such a deception. Well, where is the truth? It's in the middle of those two extremes. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says it powerfully. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. See, grace is two things. I gave you the definition in four different ways in the first episode, but the two primary definitions of grace are, number one, divinely imparted ability. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, God's grace gives me the ability not only to fulfill the role of an apostle, but to live as a Christian. I am what I am by the grace of God. But then Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And in Ephesians, he also talked about this grace being poured out in our lives that makes us accepted in the beloved. It's the unearned favor of God. So grace is both divinely imparted ability and unearned favor from God. So where do we find the two extremes coming together in a marriage in the middle that is right? Let me make it as succinct and as easy to understand as possible. You have to, by the grace of God, tap into the divinely imparted ability to live above sin. That is what God has called you to do. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So God gives you grace to live above sin. But if by chance you falter and fall flat on your face, all hope is not gone. Because in a good kind of way, grace is two-faced. First is divinely imparted ability to live above sin. But if you need it, if you're in a heartbreaking situation where you failed miserably, grace changes its face and becomes unmerited love again to pick you out of the rubble and the mire and the muck and to set you back up on a rock, the rock of ages and to clean you up and make you acceptable and righteous in the sight of heaven again. So you've got to strive through grace to live as righteous a life as you can live. But at the same time, you cannot attribute your righteousness to your own works. You have to always attribute your righteousness to the gift of God's grace. In fact, the word often translated gift is charisma, and the root of that is charis, which is translated grace. All of God's gifts are gifts of grace. And one of the gifts you receive is the gift of righteousness. And so you always attribute your standing of righteousness to the grace of God, to the charisma, the gift of righteousness, the gift of grace, where he makes you acceptable in his sight. But you don't live an unrighteous life and then just think, well, I'll claim that and get by with compromise. No, you've got to balance the two extremes. You've got to do everything you can do to be right and then realize you fall short and you must claim God's grace to be 100% right in the sight of heaven. That leads me to the fourth question. Why should we call grace God's one way or the other plan? Because Romans 6, 14 says, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. See, Grace, again, is these two things, divinely imparted ability and unmerited love. And the reason I call it God's one way or the other plan is either God's going to give you grace to be strong, to overcome, to rise above the lower nature, to be victorious and living a holy life, 
or if you stub your toe in small ways or crash in tragic ways, you can still crawl back up on your feet, claim the grace of God, fulfill the requirement God places upon you, which is faith, humility, and sincere love. Those are the three heart attitudes God requires. I talked about it in the first episode. And if you have faith, if you keep believing in the cross, you humble yourself in sincere love and repentance toward God. There is an inexhaustible river of grace flowing your direction. That's why grace is God's one way or the other plan. Because one way or the other, he intends to get you to heaven. One way or the other, he intends to empower you to prevail against all the negatives that you face in life. This is such a powerful subject. I've got to continue on the next episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity. Find out more about what it is to be heirs of the grace of life. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.